Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and uh, we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Traditionally, then, this is the uh, the first Sunday of Lent in cycle C, and, uh, and it is a story of the temptations in the desert. We have to contextualize the story of the, of, of the temptations in the desert, because <clears throat> there is a constant theme in the scriptures of time spent in the desert. Israel spends 40 years in the desert. Jesus is now going to spend 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And the reason for that is, is that it is in the wastelands of the desert, and specifically in the New Testament, the desert is is specified as uh, the desert between Qumran and Jericho, down in in the, where the near where the Jordan empties empties into the Dead Sea. And so, basically, they are supposed to be places that are kind of devoid of all the distractions of this world and allows the, allows the person to encounter the full force of both good and evil. This works its way, certainly, into the tradition of the Desert Fathers in the Church and St. Anthony in the Desert, famous the stories of St. Anthony um, wrestling with the devil and uh, encountering evil, and so that that it, to encounter to encounter evil and good means not only that we look outside of ourselves but it means that we look deep inside of ourselves as well for if we are not if we are all good inside evil is not a seductive reality but if we have a kind of dispositions toward these kinds of things then it becomes a true struggle and a true choice and a true kind of way of opening ourselves totally and completely to God and to conversion. So when Jesus then is taken into the desert, and I think this is an important part, Mark says the Holy Spirit drove him into the desert. Luke says he led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Um, this is a very odd kind of uh, kind of reality in this gospel because, you know, many people have a problem with that line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, saying God never leads us into temptation. Here the Spirit drives Jesus into the desert to be tempted and leads him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. That there, because there is a reason for it, because there is an opportunity in this for Jesus as a man to come to a fuller consciousness of himself and also for ourselves to see and to understand the kind of things that will beset us in our faith journey of life as well. For when Jesus goes into the desert and Satan appears to him, he has already fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, obviously, he is hungry. And so, basically, <clears throat> what happens then is that the, uh, that the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, use what you've got for yourself. I mean, it's legitimate, isn't it? It's legitimate if you have the power to turn stones into bread and you haven't eaten for 40 days. Isn't it realistic, maybe, that you could do this? But Jesus sees what's behind this also. 
It is the appeal to his, to using his powers for himself. And that is that is something that he never it never was intended to be. And so this temptation to take care of me first, this temptation to use whatever I have for my own advantage and not think about the communal dimension of my life and not think about what others need or want in their world, but to take care of myself. And Jesus says to that, and that, you know, that he is not going to do that. He says, uh, go get away from me. And, uh, and he says also that, um, he refers to he refers to the book of numbers when the israelites complained against god because they wanted something else to eat than what they had and in this then jesus takes on a whole another dimension of his redeeming power as well because basically um what he's doing is do, going into the desert he is israel in the desert and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds, which is the sign of redemption and the sign of the coming of the Messiah. That uh, that there is a great deal of, of uh, concern, and there is a great deal of uh, of stress and 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 pressure on Jesus, um, because the expectations as he comes to the realization of his messianic role, the expectations that are attached to that role become phenomenal. They become a temptation that therefore he should be able to say and to do whatever he wants and he should be able to use it for his own good, should he not. And in this it says, during that time he ate nothing. And he says, but Jesus replied to Satan, scripture says man does not live on bread alone. And so he's acknowledging the full dimension of the human spirit, of the human person. He's not enslaved to his particular needs and wants at any particular time. There was always a greater element, a greater element of freedom and a greater element of relationship in man that this does not become the sole focus of his life. Then, leading him to a height the devil showed him in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all this power and glory of these kingdoms, for it has been commanded to me that I give it, that I give it to anyone I choose. Worship me then, and it shall be yours. But Jesus answered him, Scripture says, you must worship the Lord our God and serve him alone. What is this then? Is does Satan own the world? No. Does Satan rule the world? I think we are, that's pretty clear to us that it does. That that he has he has um, has in the book of Job perhaps too free a hand in the world, and and he can twist and pervert all good things, and he can turn everything um, into somehow or other a quest for power, for glorification, for grandeur. For all those things. And this was one of the temptations of being the Messiah, because the popular notion of the Messiah was someone who would do that, who would take all the kingdoms of the earth, who would overcome all of those kinds of all of those kinds of uh, of uh, evil things in the world and turn them into his own. 
But Jesus says you must worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. He speaks not only to Satan, but he speaks to that temptation of Satan within each of us as well, that we are to worship the Lord our God and to serve him alone. How divided are we and how fractured are our loyalties and our desires and our attractions? All of those things. And what comes when we choose between the faith and the temptations of the world? Would that we would have the strength and the courage of Jesus and say, Be gone, Satan. And then he led him to Jerusalem and made him stand on the parapet of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said to him, throw yourself down from here. For scripture says he will put his angels in charge of you to guard you. And again, they will hold you on their hands, lest you hurt your foot against a stone. So there now, the Messiah was expected to do all sorts of spectacular things. This would have been pretty spectacular for Jesus to hurl himself off the parapet of the temple and have angels swoop down and catch him before he before he suffers any harm or any injury from it whatsoever. The sign would have been compelling. The sign was certainly expected. And it would be kind of a confirmation. He wouldn't have to say a whole lot. He just does what they think he should do. And then they'll recognize him for who he is. But Jesus is smarter than that. He knows that even when he raises from the dead, they will not acknowledge him. That even when he has performed multiple signs, they say to him, Um, will show us a sign. And he says, have you been with me this long? You know, so these temptations then are not just peculiar to, to Jesus, but they represent the temptations of Israel in the desert, and they represent the expectations of the Messiah, and they represent also the kind of temptations that each of us will suffer in the course of our lives. To, to grandeur, to self-indulgence, to uh, some, kind of, uh, some kind of honor and prestige and power and all of those kinds of things. They all afflict us and they all affect us. And we see it all the time in small ways, but we see it also in great ways in the world where great men succumb to the temptations that Jesus resisted. And in so doing, in so doing, become the pathetic tragedies of history. I'm thinking particular of, for instance, in our own era, um, Adolf Hitler. He was going to conquer the world. He was going to be the Fuhrer of, uh, of all of Europe, and eventually, of course, the rest of the world, too, once he had consolidated his power. But instead, he ends up shooting himself in, in, a, in a bunker in Berlin as his whole his whole dream crumbles before him. That this is an illusion that Satan puts before us. It is an illusion that if you take care of yourself at the expense of everyone else, you'll be happy and you'll be all right. It is an illusion to think that if we can jockey our positions into where we have control over other people, that somehow or other that will satisfy us. It is an illusion to think somehow or other that no matter what we do, God will take care of us. This against the presumption of God's care for us is certainly very much a part of the modern Christian malaise, where in fact, 
where in doing away with the, with the notion of sin and in doing away with the sense that we have to that that how we live our lives have some impact on on how we spend eternity all of that all of that is part of the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness oh god will take care of me god likes me i can get away with this i can do that um, after all, God wants me to be happy. God wants me, all of these kinds of things. And we live as though there is no God. We live as though we're accountable to no one when we do that. And Jesus, in his deep sense of accountability to the Father, is able to resist the temptation to be the spectacular Messiah. And in so doing, then, overcomes the temptations of the desert the temptations in the desert of our own hearts and our own world, the temptations that Israel succumbed to in their desert, and also in the story of conversion and the story of redemption. It, it makes it important for us to realize and to see um, how, how dramatic, for instance, the, uh, it is for for the decisions that we make in our life and the consequences of those decisions. So this then, as we, we, we look through it, is the story, the story of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. First of all, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And next of all, Satan presents to him these vast temptations that include all the small temptations of our life. It's not that, you know, no one's going to say, you know, if you... If you uh, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. No one's going to say that to you or to me. But, but in small ways, that goes on all the time. If you, if you, if you compromise your principles, if you, if you use deceit, if you use uh, all sorts of things to gain control and power over somebody else or somebody else's life or some other situation, you're falling, you're falling into the temptation that Jesus faced in the desert. You're falling into the temptation that slowly, slowly encrusts your soul with kind of a, a, a brittleness and a darkness that makes it more and more difficult always to be open and flexible and to be ready to respond to the Lord's invitations of grace and the Lord's invitation to goodness and the Lord's invitation to virtue. In all of this, we, can, we began the formation of our hearts. We began the formation of our hearts when we're very young, when we face these kinds of things and when we're allowed to pursue them without realizing the damage that we're doing to ourselves, which is the real importance of why we say that the parents' obligation is the education of their children. It's not to teach them calculus necessarily, but it's to teach them the good things of life and to teach them the faith and how to live that faith in their hearts in such a way, in such a way, that they remain continually open to the grace of God and may continually experience conversion and may experience and may continually grow in a kind of holiness that allows us ultimately then to be with Jesus and to enter the kingdom of heaven. This notion that there's no accountability for our lives is something totally foreign to this gospel, certainly. Um, what would have happened had Jesus succumbed? We would not have had a Messiah. And he would have not, of course, been the Son of God. But, but, but ourselves, 
ourselves. We have to have great courage sometimes to overcome those kinds of things that will oppress us. And even when we fall or fall seriously, we have to have a great desire to return to the Lord, to cleanse ourselves, to repair our damage, and to do as much as we can to repair the damage we've left behind us in our own sinfulness. Because in that way, we come and we approach the desert moment. In that way, we approach that particular time and place where Satan also approached us and also tried to make a deal with us, a deal that first and foremost sounds incredibly attractive. But if we were to succumb, it would certainly not be. We find that in the world of drug use, that it's, it seems exciting sometimes to kind of, to kind of move beyond the, the shackles of reality, to kind of, kind of get rid of the burdens of the present moment and kind of soar into some other kind of... But, but how many young people lay dead because of that? How many people's lives are ruined because of that? How many people live in utter depravity because they have succumbed to this powerful, powerful, self-indulgent reality that's, that sweeps the world in which we live. And I think, too, that in standing on the, the parapet of the temple, people want to be noticed. They want to be thought well of. They want to be, they want to be important to other people. They want to be people who are looked up to. And maybe that's not their personality. And so maybe what happens is that they kind of feel like they're not really leading in the mainstream. And what could I do to do that? What of myself could I lose in order that I might have that position? Might I lose my patience? Might I lose my insight? Might I lose my kindness? Might I lose my wisdom? Might I lose all of that in order to, to, to kind of be known, be seen? How many, how many people do that? And especially we watch it on the world stage all the time um, of people trying to be great. And, uh, and often and usually it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well because that's not who they are. And it doesn't end well because they can't do it well in the first place. And in, I don't know, in this idea of the continuing temptation that we are in and that the Lord is in, has went through for our sake as an example to us, as a lesson for us, it also then is personal to you and to me. Because we can look into each of these things. We can see pieces of ourselves succumbing in each of this. Succumbing to hunger. Succumbing to, to uh, a chance of, of uh, being in charge, of being a big shot. Um, succumb to wanting to be, you know, the, the person who's noticed, the person who leads, the person who's out front. We can see all those things in ourselves. And then is when the human wisdom and when prayer comes into important, important role in our life. For the question we always ask the Lord in any of these kinds of wild temptations, 
The question that we always ask the Lord is, but who am I? And why did you make me? And what am I made for? I made, I am made to be who you created me to be, not who I decide that I will create myself to be. We run into that whole thing in, in much of the in much of the transgender movement, which whatever the complications and whatever the psychological and emotional complications of those things are, it comes from a theory basically that sprang from the late 19th and throughout the 20th century that we have a right to make ourselves whoever we want to be. There is no given to the human person. There is the, the human person kind of comes forth as a blank sheet, and then we set out to create who we want to be, what we want to be. The idea of the Creator God is denied, and the idea that somehow or other God created us in a certain way, and that God created us as He wanted us to be, is irrelevant. And that this idea of the self-autonomy, the self-creating human person, and we've talked about this often, um, it's, it's part of the a feminist deconstructionist philosophy of the mid-20th century. And, uh, and, and in that, where they have managed to separate the body from the person, for they identify the person as consciousness. And the body then becomes uh, something of plastic art, that we can then, in our own creativity, make it into whatever we want it to be. And it's interesting, too, because some of them um, advocated, advocated too, the, the idea of surgical change in order to experience pain, because all good things come through pain. Somehow they, 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 they will postulate that. And, and so a whole kind of structure of mental, of intellectual um, configurations have imposed themselves upon the society in which we live, that the idea of the body as being somehow or other belonging to the consciousness and not a being really in itself, and that we have the right in that consciousness to remold, to reconfigure, to turn it into whatever we want it to be. We have always done that in some degree with with jewelry and makeup and all of those kinds of things and fashions and everything. But this became radical when it was changing the very nature of, of what came forth from the creation, what came forth from the hand of God. So that's one of the manifestations, certainly in the modern world, one of the temptations in the modern world that if, in fact, we have a problematic personality, we have difficulties within ourselves, everybody does in some way, shape, or form. And, uh, and how do, we, how do we, we... We turn to the source of our being. St. Bernard says that we don't really know ourselves until we know ourselves in relationship to origin and destiny. We know ourselves in relationship to Christ who created us. We know ourselves in destiny insofar as we are headed somewhere, and this life is a journey there, is a vehicle for us to travel in to get to the destiny that is humans. In other words, to be with God, with Jesus Christ for all eternity, and to therefore live a life with and in God throughout the whole of our existence. Well, and throughout the eternal, and throughout eternity. And yet we can sidetrack that. Yet we can, we can 
fall off the rails when we try to assume too much power and too much control over ourselves, when we decide somehow or other that we are autonomous, that we are not created beings but autonomous beings who have a right and a power and a consciousness that has the right to, to reconstruct who they are as a human person. It's, 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 it's gone far beyond the dabbling in it and it has become then a, a kind of a, a, a structure that is, that is uh, imposed upon the consciousness of our world and our culture and it ruins the life of many, many people. We, we, we look back also, again, in a biblical perspective to these temptations in the desert. We know that when Israel went into the desert, they were tested, and very often they failed those tests. They failed them over and over again. They even got Moses into trouble in their demands and in their unhappiness and in their uh, discontent um, with Edmasa and Meribah in the desert when they, they tempted him to impatience with the Lord and tempted him with uh, abandoning his mission and so forth. So, so the, the, the human, human temptations are powerful and they can, they can overwhelm us and they can seem to overcome us. But all the more, the story should be there of who am I and what am I here for? And where am I going? And what is this journey that I'm on? And where does it lead? This is the consciousness of the Christian. I have come forth from the Word, for the Word has through him all things have come to be, and without him nothing is. I am the one who has come forth from him to, to understand to grow close to him, to come to understand his will and his wisdom and his goodness, and, uh, and to become like our teacher, like our creator, to the best of our ability, to be as strong as we can in our faith in the Lord and our faithfulness to the Lord on this journey that we're on called life, from God to God, from origin to destiny. So when we reflect on this gospel, let us just not see an ancient story about Jesus in the desert. Let us see, let us look at it like the world has been opened a little bit to us to look inside and to see what really goes on, not only in, in, not only in the life of the Lord, but in the life of his people as well, and in the life of ourselves as persons. For all of these temptations are present to us at some time in our lives, and all of them are able to alter the way that we travel this road, the idea of our destiny being God, and the idea that this life is lived to that end. Let us pray that this take greater stronghold in, in, in our consciousness and in our prayer, and that we ask the Lord to help us always to move closer to Him. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.